You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. And this is a podcast pairing discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know, starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. (laughs) I said that with a straight face. This is Distilling Theology. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to episode 62 of Distilling Theology. I'm your regular host, Blake Courtright. Uh, joined as always by my by co-host, your irregular host. <laughs> oh, the uh, the bearded Baptist bear, the the punny dad joker, uh, the master of disaster. I don't know where that came from, but we're gonna roll with it. Justin Van Riper, how's it going, dude? Well, that was quite an introduction, <laughs> my uh, my my long haired friend. Um, trying to trying to match Eric, you know, when he's not here, I got to live up to the expectations. Dude, I know, I know. He set every the bar so high. It, if you every time ago. every time we record and Eric's not here, I'm sad a little. Mm-hmm. Love having Eric on the show. He's awesome. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, I'm I'm doing well, man. I am. I'm excited. I love eschatology. Um. It's one of my yeah, favorite dude. theological topics. Um. Mm-hmm. And I have been in it heavily lately. It's been a while. It's been about a year since I really dove in. Uh, but it's come up recently in a couple of groups and uh, a lot of questions going on. I may be, I may be on a, in a roundtable discussion discussing Whoa. the different eschatological views. So, my man. Therefore, uh, I'm diving back in, and I'm excited to dive back in because it's a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I think people greatly underestimate the importance of eschatology. Well, at the same time, it's one of those subjects that we need to be incredibly cautious about when it comes to being. Um, extremely firm on our eschatological views. Uh, I believe it was Sproul who was talking with uh, MacArthur saying just that, like it's one of those subjects where uh, there's a lot of prophetic hyperbole. There's a lot of uh, unique language that's used to, so to come down extremely hard uh, without any willingness to come down uh, on this subject with the same firmness that you would come down, for example, on your Christology, I think would be a mistake because I agree. Yeah. They're not on the same level of significance as far as our salvation goes, and as far as what the scripture teaches, uh, it's just in some cases I think a little bit more vague, um, yeah. which is fine. Uh, God tells us everything we need to know, not everything we necessarily want to know. Oh, um, nice distinction. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm really excited. I'm thoroughly pumped. Uh, you and I have both had uh, eschatological changes in our lifetime. Yeah, um, we have. Going well, we'll talk about that in the main, another, the main so. episode rushing in there it's gonna be good well i'm just getting people prepped you know i know i know and i did want to issue a corrective statement last week because i was Mm. very tired i it slipped me when i was uh recording it but not when i was editing it i said that premillennialism particularly dispensational is a literal thousand year reign or or is a view that embraces a literal thousand year reign before christ's return which is inaccurate what i meant to say was a literal thousand year earthly reign following the return of christ and we'll talk about that more later but just wanted to like say sorry for for misstating that uh and also i wanted to apologize to any dispensationalists in case you felt your view was misrepresented because uh as we alluded to there's so many variations within dispensationalism that Mm -hmm. it would be like it would take a fairly lengthy series of episodes just to like cover the different dispensational views so we just kind of blew by it in a quick reaction we'll probably come back and do some more in-depth study uh, mm-hmm. but today is not that day. Today is the day that the Lord has made and that we are going to be sipping some widow Jane bourbon that was sent to us by a listener, our buddy yeah, Samuel Shabal. So thank you, Sam. Uh, this is called the dance with the devil Dallas Fort Worth oh. whiskey club group barrel pick. Uh, it was barreled. Sounds like on, a very dispensational bourbon. Oh, it's fitting for tonight. It was barreled on, uh, June 15th of 2005 uh mgp i was 15 years old wow giving away your age i'm not gonna say how old i was mgp devil cut uh apparently it's a baby a 14 years and five months old bottled at 99 proof or uh 49.5 percent alcohol by volume and that smells good yeah and this one is a little bit close to home at least as far as the producer i don't know if you wanted to 
check some of the notes there about Widow Jane. We used to sell this, not this particular bottling. We used to sell their 10-year bourbon and their rye at the Speakeasy in Albany, New York, where I worked. But this is, uh, yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah, it looks good. So they source their barrels, apparently. Yeah. Uh, and it delivers them from non-chill filtered, proofed with a hard yet sweet, pure limestone water from the legendary Rosendale Mines of upstate New York, where who is? Oh, both of us. <laughs> both of us. Wise choice. Wise choice. Uh, yeah. Oh, so that's really cool. Uh, it's uh, they also say that they distill every week in Red Hook using the finest non-GMO ingredients. Bless. Uh, so all of you out there who care about GMOs. There you go. Represent. <laughs> uh, and they also say at Widow Jane, our firm plan is to make 100% of our whiskey in our home state as soon as practical. Mm. Obviously, as much of this whiskey will be aging for 10 years or more as it will be a while. Uh, however, before some of it becomes available. So obviously they want to make it good. They want to make it quick. But obviously there's going to be time involved in aging a whiskey. Amen. Yeah, and that's something very similar to the Whistlepig company up in Vermont. Mm -hmm. They sourced MGP rye. They got the barrels. They bottled it. They bottled it at a specific proof. In the case of Whistlepig, it was 100 proof. In the case of Widow Jane, in this particular version, it's 99 proof. Um, And then they barreled it and sold it or bottled it and sold it and won a bunch of awards, got a bunch of recognition. They, They did a good blend, right? And... Now, Whistlepig has been working towards their own 10-year bourbon with rye grown right there in Vermont distilled there, but it just takes time. So they've been releasing ones progressively that have more and more uh, of their aged uh, spirits that they've grown themselves. So kudos to the the crew at Widow Jane down in Red Hook, Brooklyn, New York, um, who sources this whiskey from all over. They they say they scour the country looking for the best barrels to source, so... We uh, we respect that effort, but Justin, what do you what do you smell? What's uh what's sticking out to you? I know you've been you've been smelling it a little more than I have because I've been trying to not. I, I know if I start smelling it, I'm not going to be able to stop myself from tasting it. So <laughs> no, there's like a there's like an interesting blend of like crisp honey apples, cinnamon, maybe a little bit of clove, yeah. pepper. I also get, get that vanilla. Mm-hmm tannic note like i I get the the openness in the nose yeah the vanilla is not like overwhelmingly strong no it's just sort of in the midst i didn't want to repeat your notes that's why i was yeah throwing some other ones in there yeah man that smells this smells like a fall day in upstate new york to me oh yeah it's been a while since we've had a whiskey that kind of reminds me of that but this definitely has that sense to me yeah there's almost like a fresh springy sort of or like a not springy like a fall fresh crisp morning um but like by the lake yeah you might get a little bit of the mist from the from the lake the steam of the water i love it i love it dude it reminds me of my camp (laughs) it smells so good yeah this makes me want to go camping with friends yeah drinking whiskey yeah man i'm excited to taste this thank you sam for sending it to us um Excited to uh, for, for 99 proof. It's not terribly harsh on the nose either. No, not at all. Yeah, that apple note definitely punches through, followed by the baking spice. The vanilla yeah. is definitely more of a tertiary, um, at least for me. It's definitely coming in towards the, the back. Yeah, end sort, sort of the back of the, the, the nose. Yeah. I'm excited. Let's taste this thing and, and jump <sighs> yes, in tonight. Yes, please. Dude. Let's do it. Here we go. Cheers. Oh, man. Boy, that's good. <laughs> so I'm definitely getting, I get a little bit of the oak tannins in the side of the mouth. Yep. So it's not, it's not overly sweet, but through the middle, it's mouthwatering. I get um, molasses, like that brown sugar mm-hmm. note. Mm-hmm. I do get the apples, but it's more towards the front and it's more of a tart red apple. Yeah, note. it's kind of like, I was going to say like a red apple. Um, it, it's got kind of that, it, it almost has the same effect where around the sides of the tongue, it kind of dries out a little bit Yeah, um, that you get from one of those more soft sort of crisp apples Mm-mm. um oh man the the cinnamon kind of sets in and i'm almost getting like a toffee yeah uh, i can see that but like but like almost like a toffee that you smell in the distance <laughs> it's not like directly <laughs> on the palate uh, amazing 
Oh my goodness. I got to go in for another sip mm-hmm. for science. This is, you know, we're, we're, we're working hard here for, for research purposes for our <laughs> listeners. We'll make the sacrifice. It's, it's actually quite smooth. Mm-hmm. Um, and very warming, like a very calm. Um, there's definitely more with the second sip. There's definitely a little more of that baking spice, almost like a, almost like a hint of like Baker's chocolate. Mm-hmm. Um, man, that's really good. <laughs> the finish lingers around a little. Mm-hmm. It's mouth watering. It almost gets hot again, like alcohol burn at the back. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, a little bit of that black pepper that you got in the nose. I'm getting a little bit in the finish. Okay. Um, but yeah, molasses, vanilla. There could even be some sort spice. of like uh, gingerbread. Okay. Yeah, I get that. This reminds me of a lot of the overproof whiskeys that I own. Something like a Booker's Small Batch or a mm. Stag Junior. Yeah, it's got yeah, that yeah, yeah. same like. It's Character. not quite as viscous. Yeah, similar kind of profile. Not as viscous. Not as bitey. Because mm-hmm. the alcohol by volume is lower, 99 proof instead of like 130, but it's got that same quality and it's pretty viscous mm-hmm. and pretty full bodied mouthfeel. Like this is not light yeah. on the tongue. No, um, no, it, it does. It does remind me of the bookers. You're right. Or the uh, Elijah man. Craig. That's so good, man. That's tasty. Oh, well, I'm going to enjoy continuing to sip this as we uh, dive into eschatology. But first, let's start. Let's open our, our theological section with. Uh, a prayer from the Valley of Vision. And Justin, what are we reading tonight? Uh, folks, if you have the Valley of Vision, which if you don't, we always recommend it because it's amazing. Great, beautiful collection of prayers. Uh, turn to page 196. Uh, we have Faith in the World. Um, so, if you don't have it, bow your heads with us and pray. Oh Lord, The world is artful to entrap, approaches in fascinating guise, extends many a gilded bait, presents many a charming face. Let my faith scan every painted bauble and escape every bewitching snare in a victory that overcomes all things. In my duties, give me firmness, energy, zeal, devotion to thy cause, courage in thy name. Love is a working grace, and all commensurate with my trust. Let faith stride forth in giant power, and love respond with energy in every act. Mm. I often mourn the absence of my beloved Lord, whose smile makes earth a paradise, whose voice is sweetest music, whose presence gives all graces strength. Mm. But by unbelief, I often keep him outside my door. Let faith give entrance that he may abide with me forever. Mm. Thy word is full of promises, flowers of sweet fragrance, fruit of refreshing flavor when culled by faith. May I be made rich in its riches, be strong in its power, be happy in its joy, abide in its sweetness, feast on its preciousness, draw vigor from its manna. Lord, Increase my faith. Mm. Man. <laughs> oh, that's Man. so good. Man. This this whiskey tastes as uh robust yeah, and yeah. rich as this prayer is. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Like not necessarily a lot. Like you're not going very far here. This is pretty like mm-hmm. concise and focused, but it's so deep and rich with so few words. Oh my goodness. Man, that was that was <laughs> that <laughs> Man, I don't think I read that one yet. Yeah, that, that hits really different. Good. That hits different, man. <laughs> oh man, I love it. In a victory that overcomes all things, how very postmillennial. Oh, there he is. <laughs> yeah, man, like that that line on the second page there. But by my unbelief, oh, yes. I often keep him outside yes. my door. It's like, no, Oof. it's it's not that it's not that God is far away. He's omnipresent. Like he's here. You. Me, mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll personalize this. I'll not put this on the audit. I am the one who's saying, no, you can, I'll keep you at a safe distance. Yeah. That's me. Yeah. That's my sin. That's not the Lord. So and, let's stop. I mean, this is a, yeah. to, as much to myself, right? When I feel that distance from God, 
I need to be careful to not uh, blame the Lord for my own unbelief and doubt. It's followed up immediately by let faith, right? Mm -hmm. God who grants us faith, let God essentially grant us the entrance that he may abide in us Mm. forever. Mm. I mean, that is just... Amen. Fired up, man. Fired up. That's so good. I I know we say that every week, but like, it just... There's something about that. People don't pray this way. No. And at my church, they usually in the um, either the corporate confession of sin, uh, usually in the corporate confession of sin, they're pulling uh, from the Psalms, from the Gospels, but sometimes sure. they'll pull from the Valley of Vision. Mm. And dude, it just it just hits. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it hits so good. Yeah. Well, it but, it it yeah. kind of gives me a similar sort of awe as I get when. Uh, the congregation prays the Lord's prayer together, mm-hmm. right? When everybody's saying yeah. these wonderful truths about God and asking for the same thing together as a body, it just, there's a certain sort of beautiful unity in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so being able to read these prayers that have been prayed by many before us uh, mm-hmm. is just incredible. It's good yeah, stuff, man. man. It is so good. Speaking of God dwelling with us. <laughs> Whoa. See what you did there. Uh, let's dive in. Eschatology. So, guys, what is eschatology? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thank you for asking the question. Uh, eschatology is another subsection of systematic theology, which is essentially the study of the last things or the end times, uh, something that has been uh, horribly abused uh, mm-hmm. Over the last several hundred years, particularly in the West, yeah. um, it is a topic that is incredibly controversial, probably one of the most controversial within the church. Mm-hmm. So that is uh, folks that are actually truly Orthodox Christians. Historically, we are the same church, the same body of Christ. I'm not talking about um, non-Christians who call themselves Christians. I'm not yeah. talking about uh, even people outside of the Reformed tradition, even yeah. within the Reformed faith. Uh, there is quite a lot of controversy in regards to eschatology. There's several different views. And so our goal, before we jump into um, several weeks of uh, studying each one uh, deeply, um, we want to give an overview of what these different, primary different views are. I mean, there's there's literally probably dozens of different views of eschatology, uh, but we want to go uh, just give kind of a a bird's eye view, as it were, of uh, the primary uh, reviews that are... uh, held or have been held by Christians historically in the Reformed faith. Um, So, Blake, uh, why don't you um, give us a little bit of an overview here, uh, starting at point B there, and then we'll go from there. So, that's right, we have show notes. Yeah, we do. So, so eschatology, the study of the last things. This is uh, an overview here from Joel Beakey's Reformed Systematic Theology. This is from Volume 1. Volume 2 is out now. Volume 3 is coming out, I believe, next year. So the first topic at hand is death in the intermediate state, followed by resurrection, followed by kingdom of God, followed by the millennium, the return of Christ, the final judgment, punishment, and heaven and earth made new. Now we're going to eventually make our way to all of these, but in the coming weeks and what we wanted to address tonight are the predominant millennial views, which do have a direct impact on how one views the kingdom mm-hmm. of God, the timing of resurrection, death in the intermediate state, the return of Christ, the final judgment. Like uh, the millennial views are really important, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to minimize the significance of them. Um, mm-hmm. Other than to say, like we can have very wonderful fellowship with believers who hold different millennial positions. I just want to yeah, absolutely throw that yeah, out there. This is by no means yeah. a salvation issue. Yeah. Um, unless you get into some really weird eschatology, which uh, ironically, many cults mm. uh, stem out of a very bad eschatology, a very poor yeah. reading of eschatology. Um, mm-hmm. Mormonism, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was born out of an eschatology that uh, assumed that mm. we were in the latter days <laughs> and mm. we are the Latter-day Saints and therefore um, the name that the Mormons came up with. So uh, mm. many, many cults come out of a very twisted uh eschatology so that's important eschatology is a very important topic absolutely um but uh there are 
acceptable views as we as as we might you know sure. refer to them um because it it doesn't have to be a salvation issue yeah well let's actually let's go to one of those passages that's cited because yes. where, where does this millennium come from since mm-hmm. it since it is so divisive and there's a lot of interpretation we're going to talk about the three major ones mm-hmm. uh the three major millennial interpretations and as we touch on them because we're going to talk more about them in future weeks um we're not going to get too deep into them, but we'll just try to give you like, yep, there's variations on this one that kind of look this way and this way. Yep. And as we talk about them in the coming weeks, we'll go a little bit more in depth. But they're all reflecting on a few key passages of scripture. Tonight, I wanted to look at Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 1, and this is from the English Standard Version. This is the word of God. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So there's yeah. the there's I mean that that's that's the big one. There like you said there there's other passages that refer to this kind of interesting period of time in the mm-hmm. Old Testament prophecy, but this is the one I think in my experience that is often just drawn to because it seems yeah. at least in a certain camp I think it seems to be so cut and dry like how could you read this any other way is how people have replied to me over my eschatological view. Yeah, so, so- before we jump totally in there, just for a little oh, context, yeah. uh, Blake and I both come from a very different eschatological background because we come from very different uh, theological backgrounds, right? So um, uh, I come from a, a Wesleyan Arminian background. That was the church I was born and grew up in. Um, and so I, I had a very particular view of eschatology in a day and age when um, I basically grew up with everybody, all the boomers believing in Hale Lindsay's late great planet Earth. Uh, Left Behind, which I read those books growing up. So, you know, I was reading those as though they were uh, (laughs) biblical. And so, um, historically, I'm coming from a a sort of dispensationalist premillennial view of eschatology where I was certain that Revelation was very literal and uh, therefore I believed in a whole sort of weird slew of things, rapture theology Mm. and all that. Uh, You know, I was expecting... Uh, at any moment, any of us could just be vanished and washed away into thin air, yeah. uh, leaving everything, including my fillings, behind. Um, oh. And so, <laughs> uh, very interesting sort of theology, uh, eschatology. Um, mm. Yeah. Uh, so, that's where I'm coming from, Blake. I don't know what kind of information yeah. you'd like to divulge. but Sure. We, and we can talk about it more as we get into the coming weeks. But, mm. I, yeah, I grew up with kind of a initially a premillennialist view that it was also influenced by dispensationalism in yeah. the sense that it held a pre-tribulation rapture theology. Yes. So, it was, And then eventually that became like a mid and then a post-trib and then kind of got rid of the rapture altogether, but still a literal tribulation with a literal thousand years um, following the reign of Christ. So literal mm-hmm. tribulation, Christ returns, literal thousand years. Uh, and, and we can jump into those in a moment here, but um there's and as we said at the beginning of the episode, right? There's variety even within these views. There's a dispensational mm-hmm. premillennialism, which takes a whole bunch of different flavors. There's a historic premillennialism. There's amillennial like so. We're just going to scratch the surface and kind of discuss these, and we'll probably reiterate some of these points in the coming weeks. But we're going to go mm-hmm. deeper in the coming weeks. And we also have some guests coming on in the coming weeks to talk about some of these things. So, uh, not to get too too clued in there, but there's going to be some guests and might be giving away some stuff so uh we already told our patreon so they know but um you know all of y'all the rest of y'all you can uh, you can join us there anyhow so justin what are uh, just from like a i think we already use the terms but yeah yeah, what 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 are the terms first i guess and then we can go into defining them yeah so we have uh as we've already briefly mentioned uh premillennialism uh there's both historic and dispensational premillennialism we have uh, amillennialism, which can often take the form of uh, sort of traditional or optimistic amillennialism, uh, the traditional being uh, sometimes referred to as a more pessimistic amillennialism. Um, and then we have postmillennialism, which also has a couple of flavors. Uh, we have historic postmillennialism, which is in many ways essentially just optimistic amillennialism. 
And then we have uh, a more modern theonomic Christian reconstructionist view of postmillennialism. Yeah. Uh, there's also a, another view, uh, sort of a dominion um, mm-hmm. uh, postmillennialism, which we see in like the Pentecostal churches, hmm. um, yeah. you know, the seven mandates and all this nonsense. So uh, yeah. there is that as well. Um, but we're going to exclude that because they don't really count. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and we can touch on that when we talk about postmill yeah. in more detail, yeah. like, cause there is variety and, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, as you said at the beginning, I think it's a wise theologian's warning. Like I'm not going to put my, my fist down too strongly here. Like I'm yeah. not opposed to, uh, to quote RC Sproul. I'm not opposed to changing my eschatology midair. Like when we meet the Lord in the air, we'll figure it out. <laughs> and now that it's not important to study and that it is not that it does not have yes. very specific and, and, and tangible and real world implications, but, uh, you know, I hold it, I hold it, you know, with conviction, but provisionally because you I know, recognize he, he it became be post mill by the way. Oh, low blow. There it is. No, I mean, bef- like literally before. Oh, he, really? Uh, yeah. Oh, well, wild, wild and crazy. The more, you know, I thought that was going to be a post mill joke. No. Uh, no, yeah. no. I mean, he is now anyway. But oh, there it is. Yeah, yeah. I've heard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You started that one. <laughs> you know. Well, Spurgeon's a Presbyterian now, so it all well, works out. So you, you know, so you, and yeah, Presbyterians now only uh, baptized believers. So it's hey. <laughs> oh boy. So in, in spiraling, <laughs> it's just where else in the Society of Reform Podcasters can you get this quality uh, content? I think I think nowhere else. This is unique to distilling theology, but yeah. So premillennialism as we stated at the top of the episode, is the view that Christ returns and following Christ's return, there is a literal thousand year earthly reign. And as far as I understand it, in general, then you have the judgment after that. Mm-hmm. So you have like multiple periods of resurrections. You have um, people living, people being raised. This is the most common version I found it. Again, we'll talk about it more in depth next week, but like sure. Christ comes back. He raises all the saints. There's the battle of Armageddon. Christ reigns for a thousand years. And all of those who are in Christ are alive and walking around for a thousand years. And then there's also unbelievers on the earth. And then there's the final judgment and the dead are, and that those who are not in Christ are raised and are judged. And then there's a new heaven and a new earth. Like that's, as far as I understand it, that's like what I yeah. kind of was familiar with. I know there's different forms, but that was a specific form that I was, you know, in. To me, premillennialism does make more sense in a dispensational view of theology in the sense that oh, yeah. it seems just like another dispensation of history. Whereas if you're, if you view things in a covenantal theology kind of way, it doesn't seem right. to blend quite as yeah. well uh, as the other two views do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so following up that uh, with that, we have amillennialism, oh. uh, both uh, pessimistic and optimistic, hey. um, where Christ yeah. is reigning now, right? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, putting mm-hmm. all his enemies under his feet, making them a yeah. footstool. Uh, the thousand years is a uh, uh, figurative or a hyperbolic um, uh, thousand years. It's not a literal thousand years. It's a right. reference to this is the period of time in which... Um, were between Christ's resurrection and Christ's return. Yeah. Um, and it is a, a uh, yeah, a sort of judgment that will follow um, sort of this period of, of time until Christ has um, right. accomplished all that he intends to. Yeah. And in, and in amillennialism to what you're saying like that, using the passage in Revelation specifically, yeah. right? Uh, as far as I understand it among fellow amillennialists, we would say, so I'm putting this up myself, not as much necessarily like a blanket, but like, <laughs> you know, and we'll, we'll have some, we might have someone uh, who's really qualified to talk about this in a couple of weeks, but I can neither confirm nor deny until we what? get there. Yeah. But anyways, uh, right. But this passage, right. Verse three, right. The, the devil bound for, or verse two bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the, the pit, shut him over that he might not deceive the nations any longer. When I was in a dispensationalist kind of mindset in premillennialism, what I understood that is, is like, all right, like now we can finally like get out and evangelize and there's no longer going to be like all this crazy resistance, like people are going to be saved left and right. And now what I think is, you know, more common among the amillennialists and I would assume probably among postmillennialists as well is this is a reference to at Christ's resurrection, Satan is cast down and is bound 
and he's no longer deceiving the nations. Who are the majority of the majority ethnically, if you look, of people that that trust in Christ, that have faith in the Messiah, are not ethnically are not ethnically Jewish. Where before this time, the majority of the people who constituted the people of God were ethnically Jewish. And now it has been extended out into the nations. And so Satan is no longer able to deceive the nations at the scale right. he, he could. He's not the God of the world. Right. Uh, God is the God of the world. And right. he is sitting at the right hand of the Father after mm. the ascension. All and right. if that's true, and God is reigning, and he is successfully uh, putting his enemies under his feet and making them a footstool by the yeah. means of the church, by the means mm-hmm. of evangelism, the preaching and the teaching of the word, um, it doesn't make any sense if... He's not the God of this world. <laughs> right. And and so that's a big point of difference is mm-hmm. that on millennialism, and I would assume again, post-millennialism, both would see this thousand years of Satan being bound, not as this time where, um, you know, because oftentimes this corresponds to the thousand year earthly reign of Christ that we see in, uh, in these passages as well. Right. But this mm-hmm. is the one. But what does it mean Satan's bound? I think to me, from from a covenantal perspective, I think this makes total sense, right? That mm-hmm. Satan's bound right at the time that the covenant is uh, explodes out into the world and into the nations. And now people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are are gathered uh, by the Lord. So I a little bit of a tangent that my brain just went on. Please. But that would also help explain to some degree cessationism in the mm-hmm. sense that uh, because Satan is bound uh, during this period of time, we don't see the crazy amount of demonic activity that we saw. Mm-hmm. We don't see uh, people casting out demons left and right. And we don't have a need for that sort of thing because Satan is limited and bound by uh, Christ after the resurrection. Yeah. So just right. a, just a tan. Well, actually just, just- a- philosophical tangent that i went down but well amen i was going to read the rest of this passage because i realized we didn't go far enough so i'm going to keep going here verse four then i saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed also i saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony of jesus and for the word of god and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. And they will be priests of God in Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, yeah, there's a lot in those 10 verses of revelation and we're not gonna we're not gonna we're not gonna go you know what we're not gonna hit all of it tonight obviously we're gonna just kind of uh you know surface surface rush here but justin just from like coming from that dispensational background for you what was like because i'm assuming you had to wrestle with this passage moving from like a sure. pre-mill to a post-mill so mm-hmm. for you uh, you know as we get into post-mill uh and, and talk about that in distinction from amillennialism what interpretive lens changed to read this instead of like a literal like well it clearly christ comes back satan's thrown in the pit the saints are raised they reign mm-hmm. for a thousand years on earth and then there's the judgment in the second like it, it seems like a very clean and literalistic read but sure. what kind of things shifted you from that towards your post-millennial views so there was a couple of different things that sort of were watershed moments for me um number one was uh, reading and understanding uh, the Gospels, like, for example, Matthew 24, in light of both Revelation and the old prophets, Daniel, and so on. When when I was kind of pointed to these scriptures and say, here's the correlation, when I, when I was able to read the scripture as a whole, right, and not separate Revelation out from the rest of scripture. Wait, what? <laughs> right. Um, oh. 
when I didn't read it as its own distinct book, but rather as part of the canon, yeah. uh, I started to see correlations between that, between stuff that was going on in the first century, uh, references uh, to the harlot, to the beast, and so on, all throughout the Old Testament, uh, prophesied in the Old Testament, spoken about in in Matthew, uh, in, in the Gospels, and so on. So uh, starting to see the correlations, I thought, okay, there's a lot of correlation going on here. Why is that? And 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 what other views are out there? Because I feel like I've only heard this one thing. Yeah. And so I started investigating some of these other views, uh, amillennialism and postmillennialism uh, particularly, uh, were the two that I kind of jumped into. And uh, when I heard the descriptions uh, talked about uh, in the first century, talking about the temple, the fall of the temple, Nero, so on. Um, yeah. Oh. And I heard the and I heard the references uh, about um, the beast and about uh, the, the the Jewish cryptogram and and six hundred and sixty six and uh, which by the way it's not six 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 it's six hundred and sixty six um, and and all these different things I thought okay so there's a possibility that my eschatology isn't right uh, I'm not seeing anything about a magical rapture where we just kind of uh, vanish and then another. Uh, cinching point to me was they often reference the verse that says two are in a field one is taken away and one is left behind when i realized that that was a reference to the flood story with noah oh it was a callback to the old testament and who were the people that were left behind <laughs> the righteous the righteous were the ones who were left behind not the wicked and so the rapture theology was always like the righteous are taken up and, and the and the wicked are left behind i'm like that's backwards the righteous are the ones who are left behind. Everyone else got wiped out. You don't want to be the one that's taken away. You want to be the one who's left behind. You want to be the one who's considered righteous. But Justin, and so, then we can't sell any books. Come on. <laughs> and terrible movies. <laughs> and so that was another moment where I was like, okay, this dispensational stuff doesn't make sense in light of the rest of scripture. Uh, if we read it entirely literally, uh, then we have to read all of Revelation literally. Mm. And so that starts to get really weird, uh, weird seven-headed yeah. beasts and all kinds of stuff going on. So um, right. when I when I reread Revelation in light of the Old Testament and the New Testament and in light of uh, a different literary style, you know, prophetic hyperbole, um, it just, it just, it opened my eyes to a whole new, uh, a whole new view of eschatology and a whole new uh, way of reading the scriptures, right? I was no longer looking for an escape, like, right. man, I can't wait for the world to fall to pieces so I can get out of here. It yeah. was, how, how can I make the world better? How can I use my time here with the gospel to improve the world? And so that my children's 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 children will know who Christ is because of me. Yeah. Uh, how can I make sure that my great, 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 great grandkids know who Jesus is mm. and yeah. I should be expecting them to be here. Right. Um, mm. if we look historically, uh, Christians forever were, uh, doing things with this expectation that they were going to have great, 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 great grandkids, that yeah. they were going to be here. How, they, they were, they were doing things for the kingdom that they expected was going to last a long time. So are you they saying those children are in the covenant or I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Listen. Hey, <boy. laughs> um, you played yourself. I'm just kidding. Of, of no, course yeah. they are right after they repent. Oh, um, hey. So, <laughs> um, so that changed everything for me. And so post-millennialism, uh, historically speaking, um, could also again be referred to as optimistic amillennialism in many ways, um, is this idea that, Christ again is reigning now. Um, the thousand years is a literal, uh, not a literal uh, thousand year reign, but a figurative reign. Um, but the view uh, of what happens between now and when Christ returns is a bit more optimistic, right? We we expect to see a a successful uh, evangelization of the world, not uh, necessarily as though every single human being who's alive gets saved, but that the gospel successfully reaches all nations. Disciples are made in all nations that the gospel is successfully spread from coast to coast, from, from, from one end of the earth to the other, all the nations. When, when, you know, when Jesus says, uh, go make disciples of all nations that we will actually do that, mm -hmm. go and make disciples of all nations. 
and that the gospel, as it does, uh, is successful. Um, There are forms of postmillennialism that view the thousand years as a literal thousand years towards the end of this period of time, where it's like a golden age, uh, which um, is often in conjunction with theonomy, uh, which would essentially lead to a, a theocratic society in which God's law is is what's reigning literally for a thousand years, uh, and then the final white throne judgment. So um, there is some differentiation there. Um, I, I'm of the the former uh, view, the more historic uh, view. Um, historically speaking, uh, post millennialism, in one sense, uh, is is the historic view uh, in the same. Uh, in the same vein as amillennialism because yeah. we have uh, a very similar view of the millennium. Yeah. And so, you know, we can both trace it back to Augustine and so on. So sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was great, man. <laughs> I wanted to, to borrow this article here uh, by Keith Matheson from Ligonier uh, where he touches, I want to touch mm. premillennialism again, just with a little bit more detail before we, you know, yeah, wrap up yeah. tonight and then we'll obviously got to represent our brothers, you know, cause there is a historic, you know, we, we were railing a little bit on dispensational premillennialism, which makes sense, right? When, when mm-hmm. you, when you view that different passages of scripture uh, are addressed to, and different promises are addressed to, to different peoples of God, mm-hmm. you're going to have a bifurcated system where Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah's eschatological views have to be by necess- by necessity, to some degree, at least some of the promises cannot be fulfilled or coincided in revelation. Sure. Just by the nature of the system, you can't, you can't have it both ways. And and in most case, most dispensationalists I've run across, no matter where they fall in the spectrum from like a MacArthur leaky dispensationalist to the like crazy wild John Hagee dis- blood moons dispensationalist, like <laughs> no matter where you are on the spectrum, and that's a big spectrum, mind you. Yeah. Um, they all seem to recognize this, that there's certain promises in the Old Testament that are specific to Old Testament Israel that will have a fulfillment that that are different from the promises to the church. And then, you know, like a MacArthur-esque dispensationalist, I think would probably be more uh, cohesive in, in, in big scale promises. But there's yeah. that discontinuity. It's an, I think it's important to distinguish because I, I think premillennialism is often confused with this dispensational premillennialism. Right. Um, as if there, as if there's only a disagreement on the rapture, for example. Yeah. Um, however, they're completely different eschatological systems, yeah. right? Uh, historically, uh, the, the historic premills would largely reject, uh, the dispensational understanding of redemptive history. Right. Yeah. So we have, um, essentially premillennialism, the, the sort of the fundamentals are, are Jesus began as, uh, when Jesus began his public ministry, the kingdom of God was manifest through his ministry mm-hmm. um, upon the ascension into heaven, the gift of the spirit at Pentecost. Uh, the kingdom is present through the spirit until the end of the age, which is marked by the return of Christ and an earthly judgment during which a uh, period of time uh, immediately preceding the return of Christ, there is a great apostasy and a tribulation, um, yeah. right? That's a, that's sort of a difference again between pre-mill and then both yours and my position. Sure. Um, then after yeah. the return of Christ, then there will be that thousand years reign um, separating the yeah. first resurrection and the second resurrection, and then Satan will be bound, uh, and then the kingdom will be consummated uh, yeah. or made visible during that period. And then at the end of that millennial reign, Satan will then be loosed and there will be a massive rebellion, right? The whole Gog and Magog thing. Yeah. Um, immediately preceding the second resurrection of the final judgment, uh, after this, there will be the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. So um, it is a bit different from sure. dispensationalism. Um it also seems a, a bit overcomplicated. Uh, sure. Well, let me. Taste, yeah. But well, let me. I'll just. It's very similar to what you just highlighted. I just like the yes. the conciseness here that that Keith writes here. So he says, mm. historic premillennialism teaches that at the end of the present age there will be the great tribulation, followed by the second coming of Christ. Yep. Uh, at Christ's coming, the Antichrist will be judged, the righteous will be resurrected, Satan will be bound, and Christ will establish his reign on earth, which will last for a thousand years and be a time of unprecedented blessing for the church. At the time of the millennium, Satan will be released, and he will instigate a rebellion, which will be quickly crushed. The unrighteous will at this point be raised for judgment, after which the eternal state will begin. He goes on to say, historic premillennialism has had its proponents in the church from at least the 2nd century AD onward. 
It was taught, for example, by Irenaeus from 140 to 203 AD, or from Justin Martyr, 100 to 165, and may have been taught in the late 1st century by Papias, uh, uh, 80 AD to 155 AD. Some within the Reformed tradition, including uh, James Montgomery Boyce, have taught this view. The most notable proponent of historic premillennialism in the 20th century was George Eldon Ladd, whose commentary in the book of Revelation argues strongly for this position. So that said, like those are some substantial names in church history, sure, both ancient sure. and contemporary for historic, pre, for historic premillennialism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like, so, so that said, we should, again, to the, to the, you know, remark at the beginning of the episode, we should tread with a lot of grace and, and gentleness here. Yes. When Irenaeus adjusted martyr and then to our contemporary age, James Montgomery Boyce are holding a historic premillennialist view. This isn't something that is just, it's just because you don't understand or you don't have a good enough lens or someone like Boyce mm-hmm. who has a very, you know, reformed, robust, systematic theology. You can't just boil this down to, well, you're, you're wrong on all this. Like, so we need yeah. to have grace for one another. Um, Absolutely. I don't know if, if you have that article up and you wanted to hit the, the dispensationalist paragraphs there, there's two of them, but I think that that's pretty, pretty, pretty good distinctions uh, that might be helpful to what you were saying. Cause again, they are sure. very different. And I thought you, you highlighted those at kind of a, a high level there. And I wanted to dive a little deeper. Yeah. I mean, dispensationalists really, I mean, one of their primary features, right. Is that they argue for the necessity of a literal interpretation yeah. uh, of the prophetic portions of scripture, like all, yeah. all, all of it pretty much. Um, uh, basically the idea that the, the principle of literal interpretation, both in regard to the general and special hermeneutics are followed. Uh, the result of their premillennial system of doctrine. If one interprets it literally, he arrives at the premillennial system. So if you read eschatology yeah. in a dispensational literal view, you end up, or you read it in a very literal view, you end up in dispensationalism. Yeah. Um, so really what does it offer, right? It offers the most complex uh, chronology of the end times. Yeah. Um, according to dispensationalism, right? The current church age will end with a rapture of the church which along uh, with the appearance of the Antichrist marks the beginning of the seven-year Great Tribulation on Earth, um, which is now we're getting into like the Left Behind movies, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, the Tribulation then ends with the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, sounds a lot like the the Norse pagan Ragnarok. <laughs> uh, and then in the midst uh, of which Christ will return and then he'll destroy his enemies, the nations will be gathered for judgment and those who support Israel will enter into Christ's millennial. Again, you'll notice dispensations have this really interesting obsession with Israel. Yeah. Um, not that we don't have a view of Israel, but sure. they're like checking the news every day for Israel. Um, uh, so those who support Israel will enter into Christ's millennial kingdom and the rest will be cast into Hades to await the last judgment. Uh, Christ will sit on the throne of David and rule the world from Jerusalem. Uh, and then Israel will be given the place of honor among the nations again. The temple will be rebuilt. The temple sacrifices will be reinstituted as memorial sacrifices. Seems weird. I feel so um, uncomfortable right now. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't. Nope, we're not. Nope. Oof. Uh, at the end of the millennium, then Satan will be released and reinst- uh, and lead unbelievers in rebellion against Christ in the new Jerusalem. So we basically have like a rehashing of uh, history here. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to do it again. Um, do it again. <laughs> uh, and then the rebellion will be crushed by fire from heaven, and Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. The wicked will be brought before the great white throne, judged, and cast into the lake of fire also. And at that point, the the eternal state will commence. Hmm. So uh, that's a lot. That's a ton. And it's but it's a very it's a very literal read. Super literal. Also super popular in the West. Oh um, yeah especially in the last hundred years. I mean, it's only been uh, around for a hundred and yeah, 200 years. Yeah, so, so there's that. <laughs> yeah. Super, super strange uh, stuff. Like, um, well, yeah. What like, like, like memorial sacrifices. Uh, well, I, I was going to say, right. That's, you know, everything else I can kind of like, okay, I guess I can see like wanting to see a literal earthly, uh, this, this side of eternity, mind you, uh, realization of the eschatological promises to Abraham sure. and David yeah. because they're viewing 
Israel and the church, as we talked about last week, as distinct entities. And so mm-hmm. y- you have to like if you're going to read it that literally, then you then the, the land promises they don't get shadow and substance, brah, <laughs> or, uh, you know, uh, re-administration. But anyways, uh, the <laughs> right. But, but if you but if you're going to read it that literally, then it's consistent to see that you have to like the temple's going to have to be rebuilt literally this side of eternity. And we're going to have to bring sacrifices back because that seems to be the implication of the promises. But at the same mm-hmm. time, Christ offered a sacrifice as our high priest on our behalf once and for all. Yes. And there is no more like Christ in his fulfillment of the sacrificial system and the, the epitome of it. Why would we offer the Paschal lamb again when the lamb who has been slain from the beginning of, from the from the foundation of the world has come? Right. Like what? Why would yeah. we go back? I like, and I'm sorry to my dispensationalist yeah. friends for being a bit abrasive here, but this drives me up a wall. Like, why would we go back to the old shadows, to the old way of sacrifice when Christ has already come, when he's already fulfilled it? Uh, sorry, I just, because I was in Israel and I remember there there are groups that are like, we're going to build the temple. Like, we already have the, like, we've already rebuilt the implements to the specifications in the Old Testament. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> like I felt so uncomfortable hearing that yeah. because it's like, like but again, mm-hmm. it's a very literal read and I, and I understand that and I yep. want to be gracious, but it, this part in particular drives me crazy, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't Listen, know what else you have thoughts on that. It, it came, this eschatology came about like in the 1800s. Yeah. Uh, generally speaking, if your theology is only a couple of hundred years old, there's a very good possibility that it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because the church has the same truth now that we had 2,000 years ago. Yeah. The truth doesn't change. It doesn't yeah. progress. Looking at you, progressive Christians. Hey. It doesn't change. It doesn't progress. We're not getting smarter uh, than than the church was 2,000 years ago. Uh, so the chances are, uh, if, if it's, if it's only a couple of hundred years old, uh, and nobody has held to it for almost all of church history, you might want to re-examine it just sure. thought. Well, and to that point, right. Who are, who are some of the proponents, uh, from again, that article from Ligonier, the dispensationalist version of premillennialism originated in the 19th century with, within the brethren movement, mm-hmm. its distinctives first appeared in the writings of John Nelson Darby, who we talked about last week from 1800 to 1882, dispensational premillennialism caught on rapidly in the United States through Go the Bible field. conference movement. It was popularized by this by C.I. Schofield in the notes of his reference Bible and was systematized by Lewis Sperry Schaefer, the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary and the author of an eight-volume dispensational systematic theology text, well, you'd need eight volumes to fit all this in there. In the 20th century, this view was taught on a more scholarly level by men such as John Wildward, Charles Ryrie. I've seen the Ryrie study stuff and uh, mm-hmm. J. Dwight Pentecost. And it was popularized by authors such as Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye. So, yeah, like it's it's popular, but just because it's popular and just because that literalistic read is common in American evangelicalism doesn't make it true and again yeah i'm willing to be wrong like okay with that but prove it right just prove let's it. look that's fine right well the problem is you have such a different hermeneutic so they would just say well just exactly. read revelation 20 um i don't know if you wanted to just in the interest of keeping this what is uh what's ligonier article got for us here on that that post mill post mill <laughs> while we're rolling just to keep it all you know we're basically an audiobook, but I, I like how uh, linear everything is here. It's kind of following the same structure, so it keeps it easy to yeah, distinguish. No, post, so Ligonier touches on it, um, it, touches on kind of a blend of the two, and it says that uh, postmillennialism teaches that the thousand years of Revelation 20 occur prior to the second coming of Christ. Um, until recently, most postmillennialists taught that the millennium would be the last thousand years of the present age. Um and then again, you have the the uh, post millennialists who also believe that it's just a figurative period of time yeah. uh, between Christ's first and second advents. Um, so you have 
both. And I think this is where historically that can be confusing because historically you have post-millennialists who are actually amillennialists, but optimistic. And then you have post-millennialists who are just post-millennialists. And so there's a little bit of a different, uh, there's just kind of a weird blending of the two, Uh, which interestingly enough um, indicates how closely related we are uh, Mm, in regards to our eschatology. Um, Much like uh, we're very close theologically uh, in our covenant Mm -hmm. theology, um, almost, we're almost there. (laughs) Um, And and like 98% of our theology till we get to the the covenant stuff. So, um, so that being said, uh, that would mean that the contemporary views of post-millennialism are very uh, close in many ways to amillennialism, just like we talked about. Uh, The main difference between the two is not so much the timing of the millennium, but the nature of the millennial, Mm -hmm. the millennium, uh, which again, we've touched on a bunch. Um, Just the idea that post-millennialism teaches in the present age, the Holy Spirit will draw on unprecedented multitudes to Christ through the faithful preaching of the gospel. Again, that's the key, the faithful preaching of the gospel, not other Mm -hmm. weird stuff, Um, (laughs) but the preaching of the gospel. Um, Not the reinstitution of Mosaic laws, people. Look at you, Theonomist brothers. Love you. And um, dispensational premillennialists. Yeah, that too, that too. Um, and then uh, among the multitudes will be converted, there are, of course, the ethnic Israelites who have thus far rejected the Messiah, um, which is, again, uh, sort of a, a reformation of Israel, we could call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then at the end of the present age, Christ will return. There will be a general resurrection of the just and the unjust, and the final judgment will take place. Uh, this was also, mm-hmm. by the way, the primary view of the Puritans. Yeah. Um, uh, some variation among the Puritans again, sure. uh, between the two different, uh, sort of timings of the millennium as far as the thousand years thing. But, uh, yeah. most of them were pretty optimistic, uh, yeah. post mill folks. Um, in, in the 18th and 19th century as well. Uh, we have guys like, um, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Hodge, uh, James Thornwell, AA Hodge, BB Warfield. Um, and so on. Then we have more modern guys, of course, like Gentry, um, yep. Lorraine Botner, uh, John Davis, um, sure. and so on. Yeah. Uh, Keith Matheson. Yeah. And I like his note in here of what kind of happened, like why it, it suffered a bit of a decline in the 20th century, along with the, which corresponds very much with the rise of, of dispensational premillennialism. Uh, mm-hmm. He says, because liberals adopted a humanistic version of this eschatology, <laughs> mm-hmm. post-mill suffered uh, a decline in the 20th century, but has seen a resurgence in the last 20 to 30 years. But right. Like yeah, w- World War One did a did a did a big damage on that because. Sure. Uh, they were like, oh, no, the world's at war. And yeah. then with this sort of weird um, sort of humanistic view of mm-hmm. it, they're like, OK, well, we're not seeing, you know. Never mind the grand scheme of things. Never mind the fact that to win a war, you lose battles. <laughs> right. Um, you know, so that was just a, a sort of a big punch in the gut for post-millennialism at the time. And also that idea, like the industrial age, the the secular world kind of embraced <laughs> yeah. this utopian, you know, obviously secularized uh, mm-hmm. in many ways, just degenerated view. But it was it was this idea that, well, we're going to reach this like perfect utopian state because of yep. technology, because of all this stuff. And then the world, as you said, collapsed in the 20th century it twice um in earth-shattering conflict and and right like these views aren't held in a vacuum and it's important to remember uh that aspect and we'll talk about that as we do more church history but finally here he talks about amillennialism amillennialism sees revelation 20 as a description of the reign of christ with the saints throughout the entire present age some amillennialists emphasize the reign of christ with the saints in heaven while others teach that this reign is also connected with the church militant here on earth. Amillennialists tend to argue that the growth of Christ's kingdom has few, if any, visible manifestations. The focus is more on the suffering that Christ has indicated that the church will undergo. According to amillennialism, the present millennial age, which is characterized by suffering, will be followed by the second coming of Christ, the general resurrection, the last judgment, and the new heavens and new earth. Amillennialism also has its origins in the early church. Augustine from 354 to three, uh, 430 taught a version of amillennialism that influenced the church throughout the Middle Ages and into the Reformation. Within the Reformed tradition, the contemporary version of amillennialism began to distinguish itself from the older forms of postmillennialism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. 
The 19th century theologian Herman Bavinck, for example, was a staunch proponent of amillennialism, my man. And in the 20th century, the view has been taught by Reformed theologians such as Gerhardus Voss, Lois Burkhoff, Anthony Hokema, Cornelius Venema, and Kim Riddlebarger and Sam Storms. Some contemporary amillennialists do not like the term amillennialism because the prefix ah literally means no. So amillennialism literally means no millennium. One amillennialist, Jay Adams, has suggested the term realized millennialism instead. <laughs> but that doesn't fit with the nice pre-post uh, prefix yeah. situation going on. Yeah. But no, those, I mean, and those are heavy hitting names, right? Like you've got Warfield, both of the Hodges, Jonathan Edwards within the historic uh, post-mill stream. But then within the Amill stream, you've got Augustine and you have explicitly Bavink and Voss and Burkhoff and Venema. So like these are these are substantial names. And as we mentioned earlier, uh, Irenaeus and Justin Martyr um among some of the the premillennialists. So, yeah, mm-hmm. we're going to talk some more about this in the coming weeks. We hope you guys are uh interested in in jumping in and with the way the world is, it's like these are important questions that that uh, we should be exploring as as Christians. So, listen, the the cool thing is uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can come together and we can all regardless of our eschatological view mm. uh rejoice that Christ is risen. He Amen. is coming again. He mm-hmm. will reign with the saints and yeah, man. It's it's going to be awesome. So mm. uh, praise God for that, regardless of how it happens, yeah. uh, or for even you pan-millennialists out there who believe it's just all going to pan out in the end. Uh, we appreciate you. We love you. We're very happy uh, to be fighting the good fight alongside you, uh, regardless uh, of your eschatological view. Amen. And next week, speaking of that, uh, we're going to be continuing this topic. We're going to look into premillennialism a little more detailed, probably do some more exegesis. Get a little bit more meat on the bones that we that we kind of laid out for you this week. Um, and we're going to be tasting. I'm very excited about this. I can't wait to watch your reaction. We're going to be tasting Campari. Uh, and those of you that have had it, you probably have strong opinions one way or the other, much like the proponents and opponents of premillennial eschatology. And uh, Justin, how can folks get in touch with us? We talk about it every week, but we're going to keep talking about it because we want you guys to to be in contact with us and to, to participate in the what? program. Yeah, guys, please check us out on social media. We are on Facebook where you can hit us up. There's a Facebook page that you can like and a Facebook group that you can join. Please join us on the group. Uh, we have great discussions about theology, about uh, distilled spirits, about memes, about dad mm-hmm. jokes, about food, about all kinds of things. Uh, it has been very edifying for many of us uh, there. Um, a lot of growth, a lot of sanctification, a lot of fellowship uh, be- being had there. So join us on Facebook, uh, please. We'd love to have you. Uh, also check us out on Instagram at Distilling Theology, where you can get uh, an awesome long uh, visual list of books, whiskeys, distilled spirits, uh, book recommendations. Uh, and all kinds of things on there that uh, that you can find. Uh, so check us out there. We'd uh, we'd love to have you. Um, we've have recently had some interesting conversations on our uh, Instagram comments section. So it's uh, true. Check us out. Um, and yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, you can also check us out at distillingtheology.com where you can get links to our social media. You can get links to our Patreon. Oh, you can yeah. get links to our store. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get all of the podcast episodes right there in a convenient little player. Uh, if you want to do that. So check us out, distillingtheology.com. Um, yeah, Blake, uh, fortunately, somehow, we have remained still a part of this wonderful group. Uh, to whom am I referring? <laughs> well, we are still glad to be part of this network of doctrinally sound podcasts from a reform perspective that is known as the Society of Reform Podcasters. And the roll call includes... <gasps> Assurance of Pardon, The Bobcast, Christ in Context, Distilling Theology, Fast God Stuff, Five Points Church Planting Podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude, Reform Brotherhood, Reform Pilgrims, Restless, Seeker Start, Sippin' on Theology, and the Steady Anchor Podcast. You can get all these and subscribe to the Mega Feed, getting the entire back catalog of all these phenomenal programs at reformedpodcasts, with an S, dot com. Uh, whew, that was a... Lots of say in one breath. The society is growing. We love our brothers over there. It's a lot of fun. Um, we enjoy the, the the conversations, the memes, uh, the reviews that we all throw at each other. And yeah, there's just been some some great stuff going on there. So be sure to Indeed. check it out. Indeed. Guys, uh, 
thank you especially to our patrons Mm -hmm. uh, over at patreon.com you guys make it possible for us to do what we do uh, to be able to uh, pay for the website to be able to pay for our store to be able to get out uh, this content every week Uh, it's really because of you guys Um, to be able to do things like make these cool glasses uh, is all because of you so uh, please consider joining us at patreon.com join our distilling theology family there uh, where you will get uh, extended conversations you will get early releases live streamed uh the patreons are watching this right now as That's we record st patrick's day and all on yep. st patrick's day indeed uh they get to see uh previews of, of products and vote on things and it's a lot of fun uh so check mm-hmm. us out on patreon they also get uh, discounts across the whole distilling theology store what? um yep yep several of them took, took advantage of that with our uh glassware sale the last couple yeah, of weeks they and did those are going to be shipping out uh in the coming weeks so we're excited to start seeing those glasses out in the wild a big thank you to everyone who pre-ordered uh some of our glassware over at shop distilling theology.com oh yeah uh 4.99 a month join us there it's less than the cost of an oversized uh frappuccino at starbucks that really really do you really need it do you do you need it really i don't i don't need it so uh also if you join us at 14.99 a month after three months you will get an exclusive distilling theology patrons only mug and bonus Mm -hmm. content as well Uh, check us out there blake whatever you do whether you eat or drink do all the glory of god soli deo gloria (laughs) 